like okay. when your when your phone says it's got one percent battery, it's like oh, I've heard that one before. Yeah. You don't really have one percent. The phone that cried wolf, and then it does run out of battery, and you're like, I win. But also. <laughs> Dear patrons, this is BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. It's Wednesday, the 27th of April, which means that just last Sunday was the second round of the French presidential election. And that is what we are dedicating this three articles to. Uh, I'm Alex Hochuli, as usual, in case you're new to us. There is also George Hoare, who is not me. Hello, George. Yes, hello. I'm not Alex. I'm just thinking there's, there's three of us. We, could, we should each pick a color of the, the French flag. Red. Ah, I got there first. I I guess I'll take white. I'll go go blue then. Okay. Well, anyway, so Phil is red, um, who is also not George and also not Alex, um, who you just heard speaking there. Anyway. Let's let's uh, get on with this. Um, you will have heard, listener, our two kind of previews of the election, um, and uh, we hope you enjoyed them. I think they're probably still worth listening to if you haven't heard them, because there's a lot in there, especially as so much of the election seemed reasonably predictable. The polls proved to be more or less right, um, that a lot of the stuff that was discussed in those previews uh, is still worth listening to if you haven't got around to it yet. But let's get on with our analysis now, which kind of will look kind of retrospectively at what's happened and some of the composition of the vote and um, what it really means for France and uh, the recomposition of French politics, if there is such a thing. So first of all, Phil, go ahead. Yeah, so um, the article I've chosen for the discussion is a piece by Christopher Caldwell. Um, who is uh, one of the kind of leading lights, I think, in terms of the conservative, the U.S. conservative commentariat, but also a specialist on France, and someone hopefully will, um, you know, talk about more in due course on the pod. And his piece is published in the online magazine Unheard. Um, it was published on the 25th of April after the election in France, and it's called Why Macron is Invincible. And essentially, it's talking about it casts. Um, Uh, I suppose it gives a kind of historic outlook on Macron's achievement in destroying both left and right, the traditional kind of uh, poles of left and right in France by constituting his new centrist kind of liberalism, or at least dominating the political center and sprawling into its wings. And that this is a, you know, in itself, it's a kind of a remarkable political achievement, at least within the context of France's political system. At the same time, he notes about the fact that this has come at the cost of failing to, um, you know, it's uh, failing to effectively um, capture French, you know, or failing to effectively channel um, the political aspirations of the French nation at large. Um, And he also makes some other points in in passing about the fact, for instance, that it's um, Given her economic program, it's meaningless to think of um, meaningless to kind of think of Marine Le Pen, the um, national rally uh, opponent of Macron, as some kind of um, uh, extreme, you know, belonging to the extreme right anymore. And his main point is that there is no that at the moment the political opposition to Macron is totally fragmented. 
And this is the central contradiction of French politics at the moment. So that's the core kind of thesis. Yeah, I mean, that just to expand on that that core thesis a bit, it's not totally fragmented. It has two two main poles. And I think this is a, you know, a good a good way to look at it, that this political realignment in French politics now seems to be to be quite crystallized that you have the winners of globalization this is what how Gordwell puts it forming that new political movement that's macron's out of the upper echelons of the old bourgeois parties that's in the center of the political system then the former lower echelons of those two the two older parties they're the kind of the natural partners against the elite party but they're they're split for reasons of 20th century grudges and so until something changes there macron is is in a is in that's why he's invincible because you know, it seems like a pretty big bridge to cross to get Le Pen and Mélenchon to who who it was in this in this election to work together. So Macron is in a very um, advantageous position in the middle there with all the, uh, the upper echelons of the old the old bourgeois parties. Yeah, I mean, I think the only problem I would have with that formulation is that is this idea that the di- political differences between Mélenchon and Le Pen can be reduced or dismissed as mere historical grudges from the 20th century, um, as, if le- as if left and right have no meaning whatsoever. Um, as we know, Le Pen's program is pretty similar to Macron, but uh, just more authoritarian and obviously, you know, hits hard on the identity issues, despite the fact that much, much of her voter base is much more plebeian and, and, and indeed working class in many cases. Um, and Mélenchon, okay, he's not kind of the particularly that radical, but, you know, the proposition is, is rather... Uh, a different one um, in terms of, you know, redistributive policies and so on. Um, so I think at a, at a political level, they're not, it's not just historical grudges. As refers to the kind of basis of those parties or movements, then you might say, yes, there is, um, you know, there's a common interest there amongst, you know, kind of working class um, and even maybe lower middle class kind of Basis of those parties, um, they might have a common interest in opposing Macron. That uh, definitely does seem to be the case. But I think it's worth distinguishing whether they might have shared social, you know, socially a shared interest versus politically, you know, their them being mere grudges. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, and one of the um, uh, terms that's that's uh, drawn on in in the piece, and I'm going to try and pronounce it, which is probably going to go very badly, but ar- archipelization. So this idea that basically France is completely divided, that the two, the upper and lower France have like no contact with each other. And this is also an, an idea that, that Christophe Guy in a, a, um, The Twilight of the Elites, a book that we did in Reading Club. I mean, I think it's just, a, it's, it, it's, I don't know if France is the most advanced European state in this regard, but it seems... It seems really important. No, that to would understand. be Italy, George, as we know mm, on this podcast. N- n- is it though? I'm not because sure. Because France that's is a true. very. The, the country of a thousand cheeses is is a bit is a big landmass, and so it has these big rural areas, much more so than than the boot um, uh, does. So yeah, I mean, you have this kind of geographical aspect to the to the class divide, which is important in in French politics. That you this peripheral France is like you know doesn't feat what 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 is it i can't remember the the number in the the article but like 86 votes le pen gets in in one of the posher um, areas of of paris and it's like these are two completely different countries basically yeah i think that's right i think it i think it would be a problem though to say that that geographic divide is a class divide 
right? That it is ipso facto a class divide. There, it, it maps on, you know, reasonably well, but it isn't um, clear, clearly a, a class divide because there is still a, a working class in around the big cities, um, right? It's it's not something that can. Yeah. It is no, it is a class divide, Alex. Uh, not class in a proper Marxist sense. I mean, there there's divided proper, largely speaking on, on income, but there are many small towns which are well off, right? So it's not very clear. It's not clearly just small town and rural because there's small, there's, uh, you know, no, kind of posh small towns. That, and... but yeah, but I mean, that's the point that Charles Develin made um, in our one in our two-part French election special, right? That on the edges of those kind of nice towns as well in rural France, you also have where the hypermarkets are located, that will also be the kind of warehouse big um you know big uh, distribution center kind of economy that will be where working class no sure but I, but I think the more important point is that there is a, still an urban working class right it's not that the, that the working class has been entirely moved out to small towns in the industrial areas um and you know that the same would apply yeah, in, in but any that's of the multi that's the kind of ethnic ethnic working class and also the service class for the urban bourgeoisie and the urban elites right and they're effectively, and at the moment, you know, they t will still tend to vote together. Yeah, I mean, well, and we'll come on to this actually, I, I guess, as we discuss some of the um, yeah. other articles. Can, so we'll, we'll put. Can I can I issue that. a correction on my my previous claim? I said eighty six. It was eight hundred and fifty four in the sixth arrondissement. So it's like not very many, but more than I said. <laughs> yeah. I was uh, depriving agency from <clears throat> eight hundred odd. French Le Pen. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to meet some of them, see what they, uh, see what their their rationale was in that context for for voting so differently from the rest of their immediate. I, yeah, I mean, I think one of the other interesting things in this piece is the emphasis that it places on taboo, right, and that the the degree of taboo that it, that still exists around voting for Le Pen, um, and that presumably goes. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It doesn't specify whether that is a taboo which obtains more specifically in one area of the country over another or more among certain classes versus another. That's maybe, um, yeah, not so clear. But it's interesting that it that they hold that that still holds. And I mean, you know, it, yeah, it's I mean, true. It if you look, if you look at just, just one thing. Polite French people. Yeah. And I mean, the 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 share of the vote, you know, that no vote got. So that's either blank or null votes or abstentions in the second round was 16.7 million, right? That compares to 18.7 million for Macron and 13.2 million for Le Pen. So, you know, um, I think it's always important to make this point. I make it every time when we discuss any election, but the, uh, you know, abstention rate or no vote rate is really big and to simply say that you know the country is divided between macron and le pen for example you know is, is also complete yeah. mischaracterization what's, what what's your what's your suggestion there that french voters write in president jed bartlett and and then there's a i don't follow the, it's a it's a west wing reference uh, no, i know i still don't follow yeah, i mean <laughs> west i know what the west wing is please don't explain to it's me also, what the west wing is no i guess the idea is like what well so what's the implication of, of this of very high non voting Well, that they're not organized around these political polls, right? So that you have, um, and as we'll come to discuss in the article that I'll present, you know, that there's a, 
you know, the, Macron being the president of the rich and the, especially well, let's, the, let's turn to it. So okay. tell us, Alex. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, so, so as a way, yeah, as a way to move this on, um, this is a piece that was published in Jacobin, but uh, originally published in a Belgian outlet called um, Lava. Uh, and it is uh, Emmanuel Macron is forming a new right wing block. And it's an interview with uh, Bruno Amable, who is a French uh, economist at the University of Geneva, um, kind of looks particularly at uh, kind of varieties of capitalism and in industry and technology. Um, and he's written a book, um, co-authored a book called um, The Last Neoliberal, specifically looking at Macron. And it presents several sort of interesting points. Um, firstly, is that he, he notes that Macron is the least supported president since 1969, right? So that he's, um, he, he obtained the least, the, the lowest share of the vote since for a president. Um, and that something which it had, this article has in common with Phil's pre one is that there that Macron has basically constituted a bourgeois block, right? So instead of the old left right, you have a bourgeois block formed out of the Parti Socialiste and the Républicain or the old Gaullists. Um, and that Macron has basically colonized this. And the way and in doing so, it has also in some ways killed off the right in in terms of the kind of traditional right. But in doing so, it's created space for the FN, uh, or what is now the RN, the, the Rassemblement National, and uh, others on the far right. Interestingly, what this election shows is that beyond just being the bourgeois bloc, because of course the bourgeois bloc is too socially narrow to, you know, be to have to win enough support to win an election, um, it's kind of become the new right bloc 2.0. So Macron it seems has moved rightwards. And so it's not just the collection of the upper strata of the Socialist Party and the Gaullist Party, but uh, is also kind of grabbed a large tranche of the, of the traditional right. Um, and um, and though, though this, in saying that, he kind of goes against the idea that this is simply um, Macron's progressive neoliberalism that he presented five years ago, moving towards a more authoritarian neoliberalism. He thinks that's a complete illusion. There was no progressive neoliberalism, in part because many of these supposed progressive neoliberals are actually always quite authoritarian. They didn't say anything about, for example, the police, um, you know, crushing the gilets jaunes. So, uh, you know, they're social, I, I, this is my terms, but they're, they don't, aren't really socially liberal. They're only culturally liberal. Like they're okay with gays and, and people of a different color, right? So in this context in which Macron has kind of colonized the whole center ground and the right and all kind of wealthier voters, um, you have a situation in which the opposition to Macron either takes the authoritarian form of Le Pen, which Macron is very close to, in fact, other than maybe on some identity issues, um, though even there, it's it's not entirely clear cut. And the other one, which would be a social ecological one, represented by by Mélenchon, um, and that um, you know gained a, a reasonable share of support. But and and looking forward towards the legislative elections in July, um, there's a possibility, or at least an attempt, from Mélenchon to kind of claim the the banner of, of the official opposition to Macron. Yeah, I thought, I mean, my, I suppose my response to this useful, I mean, you know, useful as some of the analysis was, it's the basic premise of the piece is, you know, by the, as the, um, as the guy says, uh, what's his name? Um, Bruno Amable. Yeah, Bruno Amable. He says the, you know, they're interested in terms, in understanding the strategies of these, um, 
of these kind of new blocks that they've identified, social, ecological, far right, and um, the bourgeois block. And that seems to me to over, you know, to kind of um, ascribe too much uh, intentionality to this process, because there's so much um, fragmentation and decay and drift, it seems to me. Those seem to me to be far more powerful forces than the idea that there is kind of... um, very precise maneuvers being conducted by these uh, well kind of calibrated and well, uh, you know, cleverly intentioned and well designed strategies and yeah. tactics. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair in part because they're part, they're, they're, the weakness of the party system, which is acknowledged by uh, Amable in the, in the piece, is a major feature of that because you can't have these kind of deliberate strategies being made if you don't have parties. Kind of organizing that so i think the only thing which is clear and where i think we can certainly agree with him is um macron's bourgeois block i think that is um and you know and or and potentially becoming a new uh you know right wing 2.0 block that i think is is pretty solid because that is from the people who have the most capacity for self-organization to to actually form that block i think um i'm not sure i agree with with phil or more i would say it's easy to underestimate macron's skill as a politician and his savviness because even might not like him um but you know he's i think there is a there is something to be said for the basic appreciation that uh, which i think the article does <clears throat> does lay out like how does that that what they call the bourgeois block how does that broaden to include social groups that were that are part of the former right-wing bloc, such as private sector employees and self-employed and so on. It's like in Brit- in the British context, the, the Conservative Party knows quite well that one of the challenges it has is how to how to incorporate working class voters that that lent their vote to the to the Tories in 2019. So there is a, you know, I guess maybe you're kind of reacting against the the idea of strategies and blocks and that kind of language. I mean, blocks without a K, that is quite a lot to to stomach for a <clears throat> for an anglo anglo reader um the but there is something to be said for like the um analysis of like what is the basic class well, imperative you, of a project yeah okay but if you take your if you take your um your example george of you know kind of the tories attempt to um steal traditional labor voters right it's i mean it's really in trouble Right. I mean, there is kind of the intentionality is there, but they're they've really struggling to do so um, and to maintain it. And they're failing, you know, to kind of they're they're failing to align policy with the with this kind of uh, aspirations and uh, stated opinions of that particular block of voters. And I think it's probably similar um, well, to, in to, France to put as well. It, to put it another way, then you could say that this could be. The, the position at which the contradictions and the limitations of that project might of Macron's project might well show show themselves. I think that's I, I, that, I think that's Macron's project. A... I think Macron's project is fairly solid. I mean, I think this is the interesting thing about it in being able to completely unify the bourgeois so-called bourgeois bloc and win over other right-wing voters. You know, of, of uh, less high standing, I suppose. Um, then that that is enough of a block to rule with. Although, of course, you know, it's a, it's the lowest vote um, total ever um, ever you know ever amounted, and so the it's the weakness of the opposition as well, which kind of keeps him in there. So, I mean, I think that the Macron's block is coherent, but it's actually probably not that strong, um, and it's the weakness of the opposition, which is 
telling. And again, Le Pen's program politically is very similar to what um, Macron is. And, and as I think Chris uh, Bickerton said in, in the, one of the preview episodes, that you know it would be symbolically huge. It would be you know a, it would be a real shock if Le Pen had won and if she were to win in the future. But nevertheless, that means it still means that politically there is still very little between them. It, it rests on that symbolism of it being the far right winning rather than the you know kind of specific political content of what is in their programs. Um, and so that and that yeah. still leaves a, an opposition, which is still, you know, so Le Pen maybe is able to capture a fair chunk of the kind of lower France, let's say, um, but, you know, f- very far from 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 most of it, because it's still many of them don't vote or will vote for the left. So it's a. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, the other problem with the piece, I think, is that it, um, I mean, unsurprising, I guess, given where it's published and, uh, you know, the state of the French left, but it understates, I think, how compromised um, France and Soumise, um, however you translate that, France and Baud or France defiant or whatever it might be, but the Mélenchon party, how compromised they are and how limited their electoral chances are. So the fact that Mélenchon kind of missed out by, you know, two percentage points or whatever it was, or one and a half from being in the final round of the French election gives, you know, is filled leftists with hope that they were so close to overthrowing capitalism and Mélenchon's going to become prime minister in the legislative elections and what have you. I think it understates the fact that he is, you know, that there he's as boxed in as, um, as the rest of them. Yeah. And he, you know, he's got kind of the votes of the PMC, um, the kind of French PMC and definitely. I'm not sure of the I'm not sure of the PMC because I think this is pretty clear that the PMC vote for Macron. He's got the vote of no, there is, the, but a dissident PMC the vote for him, and this come this will comes this comes across clearly in the final piece. We're going I to want to put. About. I want to. I want to never say PMC ever again on this podcast. I think he, you know, Macron has the has because he has a stratum of managers and he has probably the upper professionals, but then there are a whole range of other salaried employees, which is to say middle class salaried employees who. Um, you know, you might yeah, say left the, leaning salary. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, that block um, that is, you know, he's not, I mean, he's not um, sweep, you know, the idea that Mélenchon is going to be able to wrap up kind of um, uh, working class opposition to, um, to, Mac, to Macron, I think is um, he, I think he overestimates the chances of France Sansumis. And the social, well you know, social ecological, I think, also indicates. I think that also is that, telling. Yeah, right? absolutely. Mean, given the fact that Gilets Jaunes was an anti-eco and anti-green kind of popular revolt, the fact that he sees, you know, this kind of um, left block as based on ecological claims suggests that in the era of kind of high, you know, standard of living crisis, high inflation, um, the attempt to shift us all to net zero carbon targets, that seems to me to be. Um, not especially propitious for a political model that's um, socially ecological. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm not sure that I agree in terms of the model. Like, I think I think it's revealing that the bourgeois block described in class terms, the socially ecological block not described in class terms, and that's the reality. I think the model might be like an accurate reflection of, of, of the French reality, but I think I would just be quite quite um circumspect about how successful that socially ecological block could be i mean it doesn't seem to have um much uh, appeal beyond 
sorry, Alex, beyond the lower PMC. I am going to continue to use that word because I think it is, I think it's, it is it's useful. not a class. It's, it's, you know, professionals and managers together don't constitute a class. They're a it's strata. a group of people are acting politically collectively and they have shared material interests. I think, but they don't have I shared think, material interests because they're neither, they're neither, they're because they're not owners uh, of capital and they're not. Shall we move on to the final, instead of this, instead of this, shall we move on to the final article? George. Yes. So the final article is um, Le Pen was doomed from the start. So we're talking about the the runner-up, the beaten finalist, the silver medalist. And this um, was published in Compact on the 24th of April. And it's by uh, Nathan um, Pikowski, who's a research fellow at the Zephyr Institute in California. And apart from just uh, an article that's dealing with Le Pen specifically and the I guess the the prospects for this this kind of politics in in the future. I thought this was a um, an interesting piece, which complements to a certain extent some of the the others in its basic you know trying to take a kind of a class analysis. And some of the interesting points in the in the article was just characterising the, the different votes of of Macron and Le Pen. The Macron basically was urban centres, PMC types, and ethnic minorities. Um, for Macron, and he got 85% of the Parisian vote. And then the countryside, especially the Northeast, with the native working classes, Bukowski frames it, went for for Le Pen. And I think there's also a kind of one of the points which this article draws out is around, I guess, constitutional questions or some of these big kind of contextual ones, which is, you know, one of the claims I particularly wanted to discuss was is it correct that French elites would rather junk the old constitutional system than let populists govern? I mean, this is one of the claims that the the article makes that essentially if Le Pen had won or if this is a limit to Le Pen's style of politics, which is completely rejected um, for whatever reason by the French elites, that there is a <clears throat> there is a kind of um, a constitutional upper limit the, well, some I, of the, for I example, think, one of the well, references. Let's, 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 let's be a bit more. Yeah, let's be a bit more specific. So the article argues that the French have kind of adopted um, a a more uh, in keeping with the kind of American style judicial review political process, even though that's not provided for in the French constitution. And so that Article 11 of the Constitution of the Fifth Republic, which allows for um, popular referenda on basic questions, um, that this is kind of been, uh, there've been political and legal efforts to contain the possibility of wielding Article 11, which is what Marine Le Pen was proposing to do with having particularly a referendum on um, uh, migration. And so the, this is the basis of the claim that the French elite are kind of finding ways to um, alter the constitution in effect. I mean, it's too, it, it, it's, it's an opposition that the article sets up between what, it, uh, what are actually two bad situations. I mean, one which is obviously the sort of, a, um, you know, the ju- sort of judicial reviews and various forms of counter-majoritarian institutions to clamp down on things. And the other is plebiscitary rule, which... Uh, is not good and is, you know, but is it kind of use the, the kind of standard yeah. go to a populace. I mean, and so, so this I seems thought, to, 
So, you know, I mean, I mean referenda are essential on constitutional matters, but not, and, you know, to form a to constituent assembly or whatever it might be. But um, in this case here, it's to, to pass policy when they're unable to do so through the legislature and to pretend that the legislature is somehow the elite um, and that referenda are somehow just the un, unmediated voice of the people is, um, is, is nonsense and ignores all the ways in which referenda can be manipulated. And are. So what was interesting? So I mean, I think there are two things that were interesting about this um, piece. So the first is like it was of, um, I think it was the most, in some ways, the most incisive of the three, um, but at the same time, kind of recapitulated the problem which it identified. So it says the reason Le Pen will lose is because she's bought into the left wing kind of mythologizing kind of the left-wing idea of the working class, and she just thinks she needs to take that kind of working class and swing it to her. Um, missing the fact that the, you know, the kind of the left, the old left understanding of the working class is completely gone. And he says, you know, the working class don't vote um, in the way that they once did. And so the idea that Le Pen can simply capture it and win power is misconceived and therefore she's going to lose as long as she kind of um, sees the class politics of France in the left leftist mold. Then at the same time, it kind of engages in its own mythologizing of the Fifth Republic, um, as you were suggesting, Alex. Yeah. It's, you know, kind of um, sees that the Fifth Republic has these kinds of constitutional mechanisms by which it can allow for a populist um, overturning of liberal technocracy. And so and that seems to me kind of wrong-headed on so many um, on so many levels. Uh, not least the fact that it is you know the decay of the Fifth Republic that we're seeing in all of these. And so the idea that it would be possible to revive it. So the old kind of the Bonapartist elements of the Fifth Republic um, that it would be possible to kind of use those in order to re-establish itself. That seems to me to be just as wrong-headed as adopting um, the kind of the old left outlook on class politics that he accuses um, Le Pen of having. And I think that buys into, or that what the mistake there is to imagine that it's the old French nation state rather than the member state, you know, what is in fact a member state of the EU, because that judicialization is the very characteristic effect of member statehood and is visible in different ways across member states of the European Union. And so he underestimates the fact, the extent to which the French state has already been transformed through European integration. Um, and therefore, you know, the idea that there is kind of an old national fifth republic that just needs to be kind of revived in its and through respecting its constitutional procedures, um, you know, that I think is deluded. Yeah, I mean, I think the the point around national and popular sovereignty, which is made in the in the in the piece, I mean, it's the reason why I cho why I chose this this article because it's the first um, or one of the very few pieces that has, has really sort of foregrounded this. But that discussion of sovereignty, not in the context of the EU, and thinking that it can be, you know, straightforwardly tapped into somehow through a referendum. And that it's not representative in 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 any way. It seems like this is a this is a kind of essentially a shared understanding or a very common one of what sovereignty is, of what national and popular sovereignty is, and that there isn't really there isn't really any countervailing one, any kind of counter a picture of sovereignty which is representative and um, 
kind of goes through through mechanisms other than a referendum, which just essentially is another way of saying that the pen is a, a populist. Um, but yeah, I think that that kind of the analysis that Macron essentially won because he was better at uniting older metropolitan bourgeois rather than uh, compared to the pen rallying the rural and working classes. I think that there is something in in that this idea that the you know, national rally wasn't able to really rally supporters of Le Pen's project. And, it, and it's a point that I think re, uh, resounds um, or rebounds or whatever is made in across the three different pieces that we that we each brought. Right. Um, that Macron was successful in, in you know, articulating these different elements at the more towards the top of society and um and that they, but that it's not able, that no other force is able to really counter that. Um, I mean, I, I don't know what, and, yeah, I think, all and also the... that 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 force is prepared to destroy the foundations of its own legitimacy, short-term victories, um, if in in extremists. But, but what, but what is so? Like, what would that specifically be? You mean specifically in preventing the referenda allowed under the eleventh article? the constitution is that uh, yeah that there would be a legalistic i mean we you know not talk always about brexit but we saw a pretty concerted effort to try to twist what sovereignty meant in order to you know <clears throat> to, but, to okay but, to but if but if macron is, but macron then but macron uses those implements himself right so i mean he might need those as well so i mean i guess it would, the, the the hypothesis is that if le pen were to win that then all these elements of the french state would would uh you know combine to thwart her and i think that's right i think that's something that we discussed in the preview episodes a point that chris bickerton made as yeah. well with with a heavy with a very heavy legalistic um flavor and that would be the the kind of the justification using using the law against the constitution or vice versa and i don't think it would even have to be particularly consistent or coherent um but yeah no i think i think this it, i guess this is one of the the big questions that kind of coming out of the the election and i think all three pieces do agree exactly that there's it, it wasn't particularly macron's like strength or um that there were certainly really important limitations or constraints on his opponents which allowed him to you know to, to be a two-time champion I genuinely think the problem with each of these is they underestimate, they don't have a techno-populist understanding of the French election, I think. Um, they both, I think they're both, all of, sorry, both, all of three of them, I think, are still trapped too much in the cleft stick of traditional kind of left-right understandings of the um, character of French politics without seeing its techno-populist um, structure now, I think. And I think following following on from that, there's a question as to whether or not techno-populism is still kind of weighted in favour of technocracy more than it is in terms of populism. Because if we think of kind of techno-populist states, um, we can only, you know, really see a few breakthroughs of populists. And those have been contained or reversed in most cases. Um, you know, kind of Trump, I suppose, uh, you know, like, um, it's hard to think of anybody, you know, like in the, uh, Italy, Silvio Berlusconi yeah. was overthrown. It's been technocratic rule now for years and years in Italy. 
but um, all with populist because they've all been able to recuperate populist elements. I think that's important, right? They're not. Yeah, um, well, it's, it's, it's techno populist, I suppose. Yeah. But the point is that they're not. You know that it is more. We haven't had. You know, we've not seen kind of um, another kind of uh, breakthrough of the populist element of techno populism. And so it's a question, I suppose, for the idea of techno populism, if that is the structuring logic of democratic politics, which is what. Um, you know, Chris Bickerton and Carlo and Benetti Chetti said, then it's a question as to whether or not it's, you know, the suggestion there is that the two are equivalent kind of forces dueling it out, when it might be the fact that, you know, it's actually freighted in favor of technocracy and the populism is there in the kind of electoral competition, but is not equivalent to the kind of technocratic weight of um, state structures and existing elites. So there's, I think support for this would be given by the fact that, you know, Macron's first victory, Perry Anderson described it as a yuppie simulacra of a populist breakthrough. <clears throat> and so you can only kind of have that breakthrough, that populist eruption once. If you're, you know, if you, you're the incumbent, then you, and already I kind of identify, you know, Macron starred himself as a, a problem solver, but like you, you would more naturally lean on your record in government rather than your anti you know anti-establishment credentials because you know you you're not you can't say the whole political class are completely um to be discarded because you you know you've been you've been at the helm for 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 a little while so i guess it, i guess just there is some there is that just came to me as a support. No, I think that's, I think that's a good point. And, and, but also he's now become, and in the eyes of viewers, according to what Charles de Velen said to us as well, is that he has become a much, he's much more traditional right-wing politician by now. Right. Of course, technocratic with some populist elements with authoritarian elements and so on, where, you know, he has very much encouraged or allowed or, or, you know, kind of normalized uh, Le Pen and so on. I think, I think Charles overstated the, I think Charles overstates that at the expense of the techno-populist character of, of the Macron regime. Um, So, you know, the authoritarian kind of centrist liberalism, I don't, you know, I think the idea of a shift to the right is, yeah, I think it's overstated. Well, I I don't know if it's a shift to the right. It's more just that he has always been right wing, right? Um, And uh, and now it's just a little bit more clear in terms of the composition of his block um, because of because of the incorporation very clearly now of the the traditional gaullist forces. Right. So, yeah, perhaps. I mean, I suppose uh, the yeah, I mean, the other element, I think, which is, you know, it's also it's Macron that has been kind of was one of the first off the bat to talk about reshoring supply chains during the pandemic. So even before the kind of Ukraine crisis. Right. Um, He was he's also one of the first to kind of have revived talk in terms of sovereignty. Um, cutting against the idea of European integration, though obviously he's always very conveniently elliptical about whether he means French sovereignty or European sovereignty, by which he would mean a greater France. So, you know, he's revived kind of, and he talks, you know, they're making noises about reviving industrial policy. So they're also revived kind of bullish themes in this um, kind of Macronist melange. But my point being the idea that it's... um, that it's going to be some kind of um, unadulterated uh, globalist neoliberal push. I think that is a mistake. And so, you know, the um, the Amable, the economist Amable, you know, this kind, this argument of uh, 
Macron is the kind of the last neoliberal. He might be the last neoliberal, but that's only to say that he's can become precisely because he's absorbing um, the politics of a new post neoliberal era already. Yeah. And so I think it will be leftists, left and analysts will be wrong footed when they see Macron championing certain kinds of um, policies in future. No, I, I, but I think it's more just in terms of the disciplinary, you know, domestic disciplinary aspects of neoliberalism, which he says he'll continue, which I think is right. Continuing yeah, to wear away market, social protections, yeah, flexibilizing labor market, labor market yes, et cetera. Yeah, and, and also kind of general austerity, and it'll be a green neoliberalism probably as well, right? I mean, but doesn't, doesn't that mean that he's not the last neoliberal? Because presumably there will be future neoliberals after he has changed to something else if he if he becomes a no not uh, really because who, who, who else who else is waving the flag of unabashed you know kind of globalist neoliberalism of the 90s and 2000s style you know well, no leading no leading political figure that i can think of off the top of my head right i mean um you know that's not the and, case. And, they be, and 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 where they are they're mar they're marginal parties representing upper middle class professionals and managers Right, where they where they're a necessarily minority party, like you have in Holland, like you have to a certain extent in 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 Germany with the uh, FDP as well. But these are parties who will never seek and have no ambition to gain us, you know, so represent a social majority. Um, and so those are the the kind of only like kind of true hardcore neoliberals left, and they're you know not not kind of national uh, majoritarian forces. Um, just to, to move on a little bit, just to finish this off on uh, international affairs um, and the kind of EU context, I think it's notable also that in the article that I presented, the Amable one, that um, that the war in Ukraine has renewed Atlanticism and that that presents particular challenges to the EU and to Macron's uh, idea of, you know, strengthening uh, EU defense policy, um, and specifically because it means that um, many EU countries, certainly in Central and Eastern Europe, but across the board, probably definitely want to keep Britain and the US on board, um, want to keep them kind of more involved in, in kind of defense, because there's been a complete rallying around NATO. Right. NATO is even expanding to, yeah. to Sweden and, and Finland. And so I think in that context, um, Macron's initiatives trying to kind of get uh, Putin in and get be a kind of mediating bridge between the US and Russia um, have uh, kind of failed. And also the, the kind of uh, idea of a more forthright, independent European foreign policy, I think, is also crumbling uh, under the, the the kind of force of the of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, so that puts you, you know Macron in a sort of uh, yeah. ambiguous sort I mean, of position. I guess the analysis of the articles would would suggest that yeah, precisely what we were saying previously that that M Macron isn't going to be the savior of the the EU, and that there's you know to the extent that he needs to incorporate that kind of former right wing bloc <clears throat> who maybe are, are more sort of French nationalist than, than pan-European, that could be a li limitation. However, Phil's article does did um, does start with, with the scene of uh, half of the people at the Macron victory rally waving EU flags. So, Yeah, I mean, it was under With Ode to Joy, the EU anthem as the um, celebratory um, I mean, tune. 
where's your self-respect to go to a Macron victory rally and, and hear that sort of wave, wave that flag? I mean, yeah. at least if you're I mean, waving the, the red, the, white and blue. The music's the okay. The music's okay. The rest of it is, is, is bad. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, be Beethovenist rather than a... anyway. But um, but I think I, I think that it, it is interesting where this leads the EU. I think in light of kind of these these articles, right? Yeah, um, all of them seem so. All of them are fairly kind of they. It's obviously unclear as to how a renewed Atlanticism, you know, whether it will lead to um, some kind of half-hearted efforts at some common European defense, strategic autonomy. All these in tedious and terminal debates about that uh, reinvigorated nato under american supremacy you know that that is ambiguous but all of them seem um to be or to believe i think that the um macron now has the you know the path is clear for him to mount efforts at further european integration and then in fact he's been vindicated so his ideas to push towards um, greater security cooperation has been vindicated by the Russian invasion, and especially that his efforts to push towards uh, common debt instruments, so pushing towards fiscal union, was also vindicated by the pandemic and by the fact that the EU has made some, again, half-hearted measures in that direction. So, I guess, yeah, one, one thing that the Ukraine, like the, the war didn't really do was, um, to the extent that maybe I think some people thought it might, was be a good line of attack for Le Pen essentially on like cost of living and inflation and like making that into a domestic issue instead it it, it wasn't I mean and maybe that's a, again another weakness of the Le Pen project was was not was the inability to do that but yeah as you said it it, <clears throat> it basically made Macron look like a, a statesman <laughs> which is obviously what he wants to be um, in his heart of hearts and that's you know and that was that seems like you know that's going to be the direction of travel like that's that's what he can do i think the it, they all what I, I mean what i was going to say was i think they all overstate the um integrity and stability of the eu um so i think the, you know they take it for granted that um you know the kind of all the kind of internal problems of french politics are there um, but they overstate the viability of the EU. They assume that these kind of efforts at greater unification will be, um, you know, kind of, uh, they will encounter friction, but that the EU only moves in one direction. And I think that's probably the, um, some, you know, that's perhaps a wild card in terms of um, what they're expecting about the future. Okay, very good. Uh, Macron stands triumphant, but at the same time, kind of weak. Uh, the consummate techno populist uh, will will ride again for another five years. But uh, we'll, maybe we'll check in uh, with what happens after the legislative elections, uh, because if there is a coalesce, uh, coalescing around a, a kind of united figure of opposition to Macron, that could make things very interesting indeed. We hope you've enjoyed this three articles where we try to provide a serious political analysis and discussion. Um, which may be absent elsewhere. Let us know what you've thought of it and we will see you next time. Catch you later. Bye-bye.